When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 20 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 20 The Soundings of the Susquehanna. "'Well, Lieutenant, and our soundings?' "'I think, sir, that the operation is nearing its completion,' replied Lieutenant Bronsfield. "'But who would have thought of finding such a depth so near and sure, and only two hundred miles from the American coast?' "'Certainly, Bronsfield, there is a great depression,' said Captain Blomsbury. "'In this spot there is a submarine valley worn by Humboldt's current, which skirts the coast of America as far as the Straits of Magellan.' "'These great depths,' continued the lieutenant, "'are not favourable for laying telegraphic cables. A level bottom like that supporting the American cable between Valencia and Newfoundland is much better.' "'I agree with you, Brunsfield. With your permission, lieutenant, where are we now?' "'Sir,' At this moment we have 3,508 fathoms of line out, and the ball which draws the sounding lead has not yet touched the bottom. If so, it would have come up of itself. Brooke's apparatus is very ingenious, said Captain Blomsbury. It gives us very exact soundings. Touch! cried at this moment one of the men at the forewheel, who was superintending the operation. The captain and the lieutenant mounted the quarter-deck. "'What depth have we?' asked the captain. Three thousand six hundred and twenty-seven fathoms,' replied the lieutenant, entering it in his notebook. "'Well, Brunsfield,' said the captain, "'I will take down the result. Now haul in the sounding line. It will be the work of some hours.' In that time the engineer can light the furnaces, and we shall be ready to start as soon as you have finished. It is ten o'clock, and with your permission, Lieutenant, I will turn in. Do so, sir, do so, replied the Lieutenant obligingly. The captain of the Susquehanna, as brave a man as need be, and the humble servant of his officers, returned to his cabin, took a brandy-grog, which earned for the steward no end of praise, and turned in, not without having complimented his servant upon his making beds, and slept a peaceful sleep. It was then ten at night, the eleventh day of the month of December, 
was drawing to a close in a magnificent night. The Susquehanna, a corvette of five hundred horsepower, of the United States Navy, was occupied in taking soundings in the Pacific Ocean about two hundred miles off the American coast, following that long peninsula which stretches down the coast of New Mexico. The wind had dropped by degrees. There was no disturbance in the air. Their pennant hung motionless from the main top-gallant mast truck. Captain Jonathan Blomsbury, cousin German of Colonel Blomsbury, one of the most ardent supporters of the gun club, who had married an aunt of the captain and daughter of an honourable Kentucky merchant, Captain Blomsbury could not have wished for finer weather in which to bring to a close his delicate operations of sounding. His corvette had not even felt the great tempest, which, by sweeping away the groups of clouds on the rocky mountains, had allowed them to observe the course of the famous projectile. Everything went well, and with all the fervour of a Presbyterian, he did not forget to thank heaven for it. The series of soundings taken by the Susquehanna had for its aim the finding of a favourable spot for the laying of a submarine cable to connect the Hawaiian Islands with the coast of America. It was a great undertaking, due to the instigation of a powerful company. Its managing director, the intelligent Cyrus Field, purposed even covering all the oceans of Oceana with a vast electrical network, an immense enterprise, and one worthy of American genius. To the Corvette Susquehanna have been confided the first operations of sounding. It was on the night of the 11th to 12th of December. She was in exactly 27 degrees 7 minutes north latitude and 41 degrees 37 minutes west longitude on the meridian of Washington. The moon, then in her last quarter, was beginning to rise above the horizon. After the departure of Captain Blomsbury, the lieutenant and some officers were standing together on the poop. On the appearance of the moon, their thoughts turned to that orb which the eyes of a whole hemisphere were contemplating. The best naval glasses could not have discovered the projectile wandering around its hemisphere, and yet all were pointed towards that brilliant disk which millions of eyes were looking at at the same moment. "'They have been gone ten days,' said Lieutenant Bronsfield at last. "'What has become of them?' "'They have arrived, Lieutenant,' exclaimed a young midshipman, "'and they are doing what all travellers do when they arrive in a new country, taking a walk.' "'Oh, I am sure of that, if you tell me so, my young friend,' said Lieutenant Bronsfield, smiling. "'But,' continued another officer, "'their arrival cannot be doubted.' The projectile was to reach the moon when full on the 5th at midnight. We are now at the 11th of December, which makes six days. And in six times twenty-four hours, without darkness, one would have time to settle comfortably. I fancy I see my brave countrymen encamped at the bottom of some valley, on the borders of a selenite stream, near a projectile, half buried by its fall amidst volcanic rubbish." Captain Nicholl beginning his levelling operations, President Barbicane writing out his notes, and Michel Ardin embalming the lunar solitudes with the perfume of his— "'Yes, it must be so! It is so!' 
exclaimed the young midshipman, worked up to a pitch of enthusiasm by this ideal description of his superior officer. "'I should like to believe it,' replied the lieutenant, who was quite unmoved. "'Unfortunately, direct news from the lunar world is still wanting.' "'Beg pardon, lieutenant,' said the midshipman. "'But cannot President Barbicane write?' A burst of laughter greeted this answer. "'No letters,' continued the young man quickly. "'The Postal Administration has something to see to there.' "'Might it not be the telegraphic service that is at fault?' asked one of the officers, ironically. "'Not necessarily,' replied the midshipman, not at all confused. "'But it is very easy to set up a graphic communication with the earth.' and how by means of the telescope at long's peak you know it brings the moon to within four miles of the rocky mountains and that it shows objects on its surface of only nine feet in diameter very well let our industrious friends construct a gigantic alphabet let them write words three fathoms long and sentences three miles long and then they can send us news of themselves the young midshipman, who had a certain amount of imagination, was loudly applauded, Lieutenant Brunsfield allowing that the idea was possible, but observing that if by these means they could receive news from the lunar world, they could not send any from the terrestrial, unless the Selenites had instruments fit for taking distant observations at their disposal. "'Evidently,' said one of the officers, "'but what has become of the travellers?' What have they done? What have they seen? That above all must interest us. Besides, if the experiment has succeeded, which I do not doubt, they will try it again. The Columbiad is still sunk in the soil of Florida. It is now only a question of powder and shot, and every time the moon is at her zenith a cargo of visitors may be sent to her. It is clear, replied Lieutenant Bronsfield, that J.T. Maston will one day join his friends. "'If he will have me,' cried the midshipman, "'I am ready!' "'Oh, volunteers will not be wanting,' answered Brunsfield. "'And if it were allowed, half of the Earth's inhabitants would emigrate to the moon.' This conversation between the officers of the Susquehanna was kept up until nearly one in the morning. We cannot say what blundering systems were broached, what inconsistent theories advanced by these bold spirits. Since Barbicane's attempt, nothing seemed impossible to the Americans. They had already designed an expedition, not only of savants, but of a whole colony towards the Salonite borders, and a complete army, consisting of infantry, artillery, and cavalry, to conquer the lunar world. At one in the morning, the hauling in of the sounding line was not yet completed, Sixteen hundred and seventy fathoms were still out, which would entail some hours' work. According to the commander's orders, the fires had been lighted, and steam was being got up. The Susquehanna could have started that very instant. At that moment—it was seventeen minutes past one in the morning—Lieutenant Bronsfield was preparing to leave the watch and return to his cabin, when his attention was attracted by a distant hissing noise. His comrades and himself first thought that this hissing was caused by the letting off of steam. But lifting their heads, they found that the noise was produced in the highest regions of the air. 
they had not time to question each other before the hissing became frightfully intense, and suddenly there appeared to their dazzled eyes an enormous meteor, ignited by the rapidity of its course and its friction through the atmospheric strata. This fiery mass grew larger to their eyes, and fell with the noise of thunder upon the bowsprit, which it smashed close to the sem, and buried itself in the waves with a deafening roar. A few feet nearer, and the Susquehanna would have foundered with all on board. At this instant Captain Blomsbury appeared, half-dressed, and rushing on to the forecastle deck, whither all the officers had hurried, exclaimed, "'With your permission, gentlemen, what has happened?' And the midshipman, making himself as it were the echo of the body, cried, "'Commander, it is they! Come back again!' End of chapter Chapter 21 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 21. J.T. Maston Recalled. It is they come back again! The young midshipman had said, and every one had understood him. No one doubted but that that meteor was the projectile of the gun-club. As to the travellers which it enclosed, opinions were divided regarding their fate. "'They are dead,' said one. "'They are alive,' said another. "'The crater is deep, and the shock was deadened.' "'But they must have wanted air,' continued a third speaker. "'They must have died of suffocation.' "'Burnt,' replied a fourth. "'The projectile was nothing but an incandescent mass as it crossed the atmosphere.' "'What does it matter?' they exclaimed unanimously. "'Living or dead, we must pull them out.' But Captain Blomsbury had assembled his officers, and, with their permission, was holding a council. They must decide upon something to be done immediately. The more hasty ones were for fishing up the projectile a difficult operation, though not an impossible one, but the corvette had no proper machinery, which must be both fixed and powerful, so it was resolved that they should put in at the nearest port and give information to the gun-club of the projectile's fall. This determination was unanimous. The choice of the port had to be discussed. The neighbouring coast had no anchorage on twenty-seven degrees latitude. Higher up, above the peninsula of Monterey, stands the important town from which it takes its name, but, seated on the borders of a perfect desert, it was not connected with the interior by a network of telegraphic wires, and electricity alone could spread these important news fast enough. Some degrees above opened the Bay of San Francisco. Through the capital of the gold country, communication would be easy with the heart of the Union and in less than two days the Susquehanna, by putting on high pressure, could arrive in that port. She must therefore start at once. The fires were made up. They could set off immediately. Two thousand fathoms of line were still out, which Captain Blomsbury, not wishing to lose precious time in hauling in, resolved to cut. "'We will fasten the end to a buoy,' said he and that buoy will show us the exact spot where the projectile fell. 
"'Besides,' replied Lieutenant Bronsfield, "'we have our situation exact. Twenty-seven degrees seven minutes north latitude, and forty-one degrees thirty-seven minutes west longitude.' "'Well, Mr. Bronsfield,' replied the captain, "'now, with your permission, we will have the line cut.' A strong buoy, strengthened by a couple of spars, was thrown into the ocean. The end of the rope was carefully lashed to it, and, left solely to the rise and fall of the billows, the buoy could not sensibly deviate from the spot. At this moment the engineer sent to inform the captain that steam was up and they could start, for which agreeable communication the captain thanked him. The course was then given north-northeast, and the corvette, wearing, steered at full steam direct for San Francisco. It was three in the morning. Four hundred and fifty miles to cross. It was nothing for a good vessel like the Susquehanna. In thirty-six hours she had covered that distance, and on the 14th of December, at twenty-seven minutes past one at night, she entered the Bay of San Francisco. At the sight of a ship of the National Navy arriving at full speed, with her bowsprit broken, public curiosity was greatly roused. A dense crowd soon assembled on the quay, waiting for them to disembark. After casting anchor, Captain Blomsbury and Lieutenant Bronsfield entered an eight-oared cutter, which soon brought them to land. They jumped on to the quay. "'The telegraph?' they asked, without answering one of the thousand questions addressed to them. The officer of the port conducted them to the telegraph office through a concourse of spectators. Blomsbury and Bronsfield entered, while the crowd crushed each other at the door. Some minutes later a fourfold telegram was sent out, the first to the naval secretary at Washington, the second to the vice-president of the gun club, Baltimore, the third to the Honorable J. T. Maston, Long's Peak, Rocky Mountains, the fourth to the sub-director of the Cambridge Observatory, Massachusetts. It was worded as follows. In twenty degrees seven minutes north latitude, and forty-one degrees thirty-seven minutes west longitude, on the twelfth of December, at seventeen past one in the morning, the projectile of the Columbiad fell into the Pacific. Send instructions. Signed, Blomsbury, Commander, Susquehanna. Five minutes afterwards, the whole town of San Francisco learned the news. Before six in the evening, the different states of the Union had heard the great catastrophe, and after midnight, by the cable, the whole of Europe knew the result of the great American experiment. We will not attempt to picture the effect produced on the entire world by that unexpected denouement. On receipt of the telegram, the naval secretary telegraphed to the Susquehanna to wait in the Bay of San Francisco without extinguishing her fires. Day and night she must be ready to put to sea. The Cambridge Observatory called a special meeting, and, with that composure which distinguishes learned bodies in general, peacefully discussed the scientific bearings of the question. At the gun club there was an explosion— all the gunners were assembled. Vice President, the Honorable Wilcombe, was in the act of reading the premature dispatch, in which J.T. Maston and Belfast announced that the projectile had just been seen in the giant reflector of Long's Peak, and also that it was held by lunar attraction, and was playing the part of under-satellite to the lunar world, 
We know the truth on that point. But on the arrival of Blomsbury's dispatch, so decidedly contradicting J.T. Maston's telegram, two parties were formed in the bosom of the gun-club. On one side were those who admitted the fall of the projectile, and consequently the return of the travellers. On the other, those who believed in the observations of Long's Peak, concluded that the commander of the Susquehanna had made a mistake. To the latter, the pretended projectile was nothing but a meteor, nothing but a meteor, a shooting globe, which in its fall had smashed the bows of the corvette. It was difficult to answer this argument, for the speed with which it was animated must have made observation very difficult. The commander of the Susquehanna and her officers might have made a mistake in all good faith. One argument, however, was in their favour, namely, that if the projectile had fallen on the earth, its place of meeting with the terrestrial globe could only take place on this twenty-seven degrees north latitude, and, taking into consideration the time that had elapsed, and the rotary motion of the earth, between the forty-first and the forty-second degree of west longitude. In any case, it was decided in the gun-club that Blomsbury Brothers, Billsby, and Major Elphinstone should go straight to San Francisco, and consult as to the means of raising the projectile from the depths of the ocean. These devoted men set off at once, and the railroad, which will soon cross the whole of Central America, took them as far as St. Louis, where the swift mail-coaches awaited them. Almost at the same moment in which the Secretary of Marine, the Vice-President of the Gun Club, and the Sub-Director of the Observatory received the dispatch from San Francisco, the Honorable J.T. Maston was undergoing the greatest excitement he had ever experienced in his life, an excitement which even the bursting of his pet gun, which had more than once nearly cost him his life, had not caused him. We may remember that the secretary of the gun club had started soon after the projectile, and almost as quickly, for the station in Long's Peak, in the Rocky Mountains, J. Belfast, director of the Cambridge Observatory, accompanying him. Arrived there, the two friends had installed themselves at once, never quitting the summit of their enormous telescope. We know that this gigantic instrument had been set up according to the reflecting system, called by the English front view. This arrangement subjected all objects to but one reflection, making the view consequently much clearer. The result was that, when they were taking observations, J. T. Maston and Belfast were placed in the upper part of the instrument and not in the lower, which they reached by a circular staircase, a masterpiece of lightness, while below them opened a metal well terminated by the metallic mirror which measured 280 feet in depth. It was on a narrow platform, placed above the telescope, that the two savants passed their existence, execrating the day which hid the moon from their eyes, and the clouds which obstinately veiled her during the night. What, then, was their delight when, after some days of waiting, on the night of the 5th of December, they saw the vehicle which was bearing their friends into space, to this delight succeeded a great deception, when, trusting to a cursory observation, they launched their first telegram to the world, erroneously affirming that the projectile had become a satellite of the moon, gravitating in an immutable orbit. 
From that moment it had never shown itself to their eyes, a disappearance all the more easily explained, as it was then passing behind the moon's invisible disk. But when it was time for it to reappear on the visible disk, one may imagine the impatience of the fuming J.T. Maston and his not less impatient companion. Each minute of the night they thought they saw the projectile once more, and they did not see it. Hence constant discussions and violent disputes between them. Belfast affirming that the projectile could not be seen, J.T. Maston maintaining that it had put his eyes out. "'It is the projectile,' repeated J.T. Maston. "'No,' answered Belfast. "'It is an avalanche detached from a lunar mountain.' "'Well, we shall see it to-morrow.' "'No, we shall not see it any more. It is carried into space.' "'Yes. No.' And at these moments, when contradictions rained like hail, the well-known irritability of the secretary of the gun-club constituted a permanent danger for the Honourable Belfast. The existence of these two together would soon have become impossible.' but an unforeseen event cut short their everlasting discussions. During the night, from the 14th to the 15th of December, the two irreconcilable friends were busy observing the lunar disk, J.T. Maston abusing the learned Belfast, as usual, who was by his side, the secretary of the gun club maintaining for the thousandth time that he had just seen the projectile, and adding that he could see Michel Ardan's face looking through one of the scuttles, at the same time enforcing his argument by a series of gestures which his formidable hook rendered very unpleasant. At this moment Belfast's servant appeared on the platform—it was ten at night—and gave him a dispatch. It was the commander of the Susquehanna's telegram. Belfast tore the envelope and read, and uttered a cry. What? cried J.T. Maston. The projectile, well, has fallen to the earth. Another cry, this time a perfect howl, answered him. He turned towards J.T. Maston. The unfortunate man, imprudently leaning over the metal tube, had disappeared in the immense telescope, a fall of 280 feet. Belfast, dismayed, rushed to the orifice of the reflector. He breathed. J.T. Maston, caught by his metal hook, was holding on by one of the rings which bound the telescope together, uttering fearful cries. Belfast called. Help was brought, tackle was let down, and they hoisted up, not without some trouble, the imprudent secretary of the gun club. He reappeared at the upper orifice without hurt. "'Ah!' said he, "'if I had broken the mirror!' "'You would have paid for it,' replied Belfast, severely. "'And that cursed projectile has fallen?' asked J.T. Maston. "'Into the Pacific. Let us go!' A quarter of an hour after the two savants were descending the declivity of the Rocky Mountains, and two days after, at the same time as their friends of the gun club, they arrived at San Francisco, having killed five horses on the road. Elphinstone, the brothers Blomsbury, and Billsby rushed towards them on their arrival. "'What shall we do?' they exclaimed. "'Fish up the projectile,' replied J.T. Maston, "'and the sooner the better.'" End of chapter
Chapter Twenty Two of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Twenty Two Recovered from the Sea. The spot where the projectile sank under the waves was exactly known, but machinery to grasp it and bring it to the surface of the ocean was still wanting. It must first be invented, then made. American engineers could not be troubled with such trifles. The grappling irons once fixed, by their help they were sure to raise it in spite of its weight, which was lessened by the density of the liquid in which it was plunged. But fishing up the projectile was not the only thing to be thought of. They must act promptly in the interests of the travellers. No one doubted that they were still living. "'Yes,' repeated J.T. Maston incessantly, whose confidence gained over everybody, "'our friends are clever people, and they cannot have fallen like simpletons. They are alive, quite alive, but we must make haste if we wish to find them so. Food and water do not trouble me. They have enough for a long while. But air, air, that is what they will soon want. So quick, quick! And they did go quick. They fitted up the Susquehanna for her new destination. Her powerful machinery was brought to bear upon the hauling chains. The aluminum projectile only weighed 19,250 pounds, a weight very inferior to that of the transatlantic cable which had been drawn up under similar conditions. The only difficulty was in fishing up a cylindrical conical projectile, the walls of which were so smooth as to offer no hold for the hooks. On that account Engineer Murchison hastened to San Francisco, and had some enormous grappling irons fixed on an automatic system which would never let the projectile go if it once succeeded in seizing it in its powerful claws. Diving dresses were also prepared which through this impervious covering allowed the divers to observe the bottom of the sea. He also had put on board an apparatus of compressed air very cleverly designed. There were perfect chambers pierced with scuttles, which, with water let into certain compartments, could draw it down into great depths. These apparatuses were at San Francisco, where they had been used in the construction of a submarine breakwater, and very fortunately it was so, for there was no time to construct any. But in spite of the perfection of the machinery, in spite of the ingenuity of the savants entrusted with the use of them, the success of the operation was far from being certain. How great were the chances against them, the projectile being twenty thousand feet under the water! And if even it was brought to the surface, how would the travellers have borne the terrible shock which twenty thousand feet of water had perhaps not sufficiently broken? At any rate, they must act quickly. J.T. Maston hurried the workmen day and night. He was ready to don the diving dress himself, or try the air apparatus, in order to reconnoitre the situation of his courageous friends. But in spite of all diligence displayed in preparing the different engines— in spite of the considerable sum placed at the disposal of the gun-club by the government of the Union, five long days, five centuries, 
elapsed before the preparations were complete. During this time public opinion was excited to the highest pitch. Telegrams were exchanged incessantly throughout the entire world by means of wires and electric cables. The saving of Barbicane, Nickel, and Michel Ardin was an international affair. Every one who had subscribed to the gun club was directly interested in the welfare of the travellers. At length, the hauling chains, the air chambers, and the automatic grappling irons were put on board. J.T. Maston, Engineer Murchison, and the delegates of the gun club were already in their cabins. They had but to start, which they did on the 21st of December, at eight o'clock at night, the corvette meeting with a beautiful sea, a northeasterly wind, and rather sharp cold. The whole population of San Francisco was gathered on the quay, greatly excited, but silent, reserving their hurrahs for the return. Steam was fully up, and the screw of the Susquehanna carried them briskly out of the bay. It is needless to relate the conversations on board between the officers, sailors, and passengers. All these men had but one thought. All these hearts beat under the same emotion. Whilst they were hastening to help them, what were Barbicane and his companions doing? What had become of them? Were they able to attempt any bold maneuver to regain their liberty? None could say. The truth is that every attempt must have failed. Immersed nearly four miles under the ocean, this metal prison defied every effort of its prisoners. On the twenty-third instant, at eight in the morning, after a rapid passage, the Susquehanna was due at the fatal spot. They must wait till twelve to take the reckoning exactly. The buoy to which the sounding line had been lashed had not yet been recognized. At twelve, Captain Blomsbury, assisted by his officers, who superintended the observations, took the reckoning in the presence of the delegates of the gun-club. Then there was a moment of anxiety. Her position decided, the Susquehanna was found to be some minutes to westward of the spot where the projectile had disappeared beneath the waves. The ship's course was then changed, so as to reach this exact point. At forty-seven minutes past twelve they reached the buoy. It was in perfect condition, and must have shifted but little. "'At last!' exclaimed J. T. Maston. "'Shall we begin?' asked Captain Blomsbury. "'Without losing a second. Every precaution was taken to keep the corvette almost completely motionless. Before trying to seize the projectile, Engineer Murchison wanted to find its exact position on the bottom of the ocean. The submarine apparatus destined for this expedition was supplied with air. The working of these engines was not without danger, for at twenty thousand feet below the surface of the water, and under such great pressure, they were exposed to fracture, the consequences of which would be dreadful. J.T. Maston the brothers Blomsbury and Engineer Murchison, without heeding these dangers, took their places in the air-chamber. The commander, posted on his bridge, superintended the operation, ready to stop or haul in the chains on the slightest signal. The screw had been shipped, and the whole power of the machinery collected on the capstan would have quickly drawn the apparatus on board. 
the descent began at twenty-five minutes past one at night, and the chamber, drawn under by the reservoirs full of water, disappeared from the surface of the ocean. The emotion of the officers and sailors on board were now divided between the prisoners in the projectile and the prisoners in the submarine apparatus. As to the latter, they forgot themselves, and, glued to the windows of the scuttles, attentively watched the liquid mass through which they were passing. The descent was rapid. At seventeen minutes past two, J.T. Maston and his companions had reached the bottom of the Pacific, but they saw nothing but an arid desert, no longer animated by either fauna or flora. By the light of their lamps, furnished with powerful reflectors, they could see the dark beds of the ocean for a considerable extent of view, but the projectile was nowhere to be seen. The impatience of these bold divers cannot be described, and having an electrical communication with the corvette, they made a signal already agreed upon, and for the space of a mile the Susquehanna moved their chamber along some yards above the bottom. Thus they explored the whole submarine plain, deceived at every turn by optical illusions which almost broke their hearts. Here a rock, there a projection from the ground, seemed to be the much-sought-for projectile, but their mistake was soon discovered, and then they were in despair. "'But where are they? Where are they?' cried J. T. Maston. And the poor man called loudly upon Nicol, Barbicane, and Michel Ardin, as if his unfortunate friends could either hear or answer him through such an impenetrable medium. The search continued under these conditions, until the vitiated air compelled the divers to ascend. The hauling in began about six in the evening, and was not ended before midnight. "'Tomorrow,' said J. T. Maston, as he set foot on the bridge of the corvette, "'Yes,' answered Captain Blomsbury. "'And on another spot?' "'Yes.' J. T. Maston did not doubt of their final success, but his companions, no longer upheld by the excitement of the first hours, understood all the difficulty of the enterprise. What seemed easy at San Francisco seemed here in the wide ocean almost impossible. The chances of success diminished in rapid proportion, and it was from chance alone that the meeting with the projectile might be expected. The next day, the 24th, in spite of the fatigue of the previous day, the operation was renewed. The corvette advanced some minutes to westward, and the apparatus, provided with air, bore the same explorers to the depths of the ocean. The whole day passed in fruitless research. The bed of the sea was a desert. The twenty-fifth brought no other result, nor the twenty-sixth. It was disheartening. They thought of those unfortunates shut up in the projectile for twenty-six days. Perhaps at that moment they were experiencing the first approach of suffocation. That is, if they had escaped the dangers of their fall. The air was spent, and doubtless with the air all their morale. The air, possibly— answered J. T. Maston resolutely, but their morale never. On the twenty-eighth, after two more days of search, all hope was gone. This projectile was but an atom in the immensity of the ocean. They must give up all idea of finding it. 
but J.T. Maston would not hear of going away. He would not abandon the place without at least discovering the tomb of his friends. But Commander Blomsbury could no longer persist, and in spite of the exclamations of the worthy secretary, was obliged to give the order to sail. On the 29th of December, at 9 a.m., the Susquehanna, heading northeast, resumed her course to the Bay of San Francisco. It was ten in the morning. The corvette was under half-steam, as if regretting to leave the spot where the catastrophe had taken place, when a sailor, perched on the main-top gallant cross-trees, watching the sea, cried suddenly, "'A buoy on the lee bow!' The officers looked in the direction indicated, and by the help of their glasses saw that the object signalled had the appearance of one of those buoys which are used to mark the passages of bays or rivers. But, singularly to say, a flag floating on the wind surmounted its cone, which emerged five or six feet out of water. This buoy shone under the rays of the sun as if it had been made of plates of silver. Commander Blomsbury, J.T. Maston, and the delegates of the gun-club were mounted on the bridge, examining this object straying at random on the waves. All looked with feverish anxiety, but in silence. None dared to give expression to the thoughts which came to the minds of all. The corvette approached to within two cables' lengths of the object. A shudder ran through the whole crew. That flag was the American flag. At this moment a perfect howling was heard. It was the brave J.T. Maston who had just fallen all in a heap. Forgetting on the one hand that his right arm had been replaced by an iron hook, and on the other that a simple gutta-percha cap covered his brain-box, he had given himself a formidable blow. They hurried towards him, picked him up, restored him to life. And what were his first words? Ah! trebly brutes, quadruply idiots, quintuply boobies that we are. What is it? exclaimed everyone around him. What is it? Come, speak. It is, simpletons, howled the terrible secretary. It is that the projectile only weighs nineteen thousand two hundred fifty pounds. Well, and that it displaces twenty-eight tons or, in other words, fifty-six thousand pounds, and that, consequently, it floats. Ah! What stress the worthy man laid on the verb float! And it was true! All, yes, all these savants had forgotten this fundamental law, namely, that on account of its specific lightness, the projectile, after having been drawn by its fall to the greatest depths of the ocean, must naturally return to the surface— and now it was floating quietly at the mercy of the waves. The boats were put to sea. J.T. Maston and his friends had rushed into them. Excitement was at its height. Every heart beat loudly whilst they advanced to the projectile. What did it contain? Living or dead? Living, yes. Living, at least unless death had struck Barbicane and his two friends since they had hoisted the flag. Profound silence reigned on the boats. All were breathless. Eyes no longer saw. One of the scuttles of the projectile was open. Some pieces of glass remained in the frame, showing that it had been broken. 
this scuttle was actually five feet above the water. A boat came alongside, that of J.T. Maston, and J.T. Maston rushed to the broken window. At that moment they heard a clear and merry voice, the voice of Michel Ardin, exclaiming in an accent of triumph, "'White all, Barbicane, white all!' Barbicane, Michel Ardin, and Nicol were playing at dominoes. End of chapter Chapter 23, the final chapter, of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon, by Jules Verne. Chapter 23, The End we may remember the intense sympathy which had accompanied the travellers on their departure. If at the beginning of the enterprise they had excited such emotion both in the old and new world, with what enthusiasm would they be received on their return? The millions of spectators which had beset the peninsula of Florida, would they not rush to meet these sublime adventurers? Those legions of strangers, hurrying from all parts of the globe toward the American shores, would they leave the Union without having seen Barbicane, Nicol, and Michel Ardin? No, and the ardent passion of the public was bound to respond worthily to the greatness of the enterprise. Human creatures who had left the terrestrial sphere and returned after this strange voyage into celestial space could not fail to be received as the prophet Elias would be if he came back to earth. To see them first, and then to hear them, such was the universal longing. Barbicane, Michel Ardin, Nicol, and the delegates of the Gun Club, returning without delay to Baltimore, were received with indescribable enthusiasm. The notes of President Barbicane's voyage were ready to be given to the public. The New York Herald bought the manuscript at a price not yet known, but which must have been very high. Indeed, during the publication of A Journey to the Moon, the sale of this paper amounted to five millions of copies. Three days after the return of the travellers to the earth, the slightest detail of their expedition was known. There remained nothing more but to see the heroes of the superhuman enterprise. The expedition of Barbicane and his friends round the moon had enabled them to correct the many admitted theories regarding the terrestrial satellite. These savants had observed de Vizu, and under particular circumstances. They knew what systems should be rejected, what retained with regard to the formation of that orb, its origin, its habitability. Its past, present, and future had even given up their last secrets. Who could advance objections against conscientious observers who at less than twenty-four miles' distance had marked that curious mountain of Tycho, the strangest system of lunar orography? How answer those savants whose sight had penetrated the abyss of Pluto's circle? How contradict those bold ones whom the chances of their enterprise had borne over that invisible face of the disk which no human eye until then had ever seen? It was now their turn to impose some limit on that selenographic science which had reconstructed the lunar world 
as Cuvier did the skeleton of a fossil, and say, the moon was this, a habitable world, inhabited before the earth. The moon is that, a world uninhabitable, and now uninhabited. To celebrate the return of its most illustrious member and his two companions, the gun club decided upon giving a banquet, but a banquet worthy of the conquerors, worthy of the American people, and under such conditions that all the inhabitants of the Union could directly take part in it. All the headlines of railroads in the state were joined by flying rails, and on all the platforms, lined with the same flags, and decorated with the same ornaments, were tables laid and all served alike. At certain hours, successively calculated, marked by electric clocks which beat the seconds at the same time, the population were invited to take their place at the banquet tables. For four days, from the 5th to the 9th of January, the trains were stopped as they are on Sundays on the railways of the United States, and every road was open one engine only at full speed drawing a triumphal carriage had the right of travelling for those four days on the railroads of the united states the engine was manned by a driver and a stoker and bore by special favour the hon j t maston secretary of the gun club the carriage was reserved for president barbicane captain nicholl and michel ardin at the whistle of the driver, amid the hurrahs and all the admiring vociferations of the American language, the train left the platform of Baltimore. It travelled at a speed of 160 miles in the hour. But what was this speed compared with that which had carried the three heroes from the mouth of the Columbiad? Thus they sped from one town to the other, finding whole populations at table on their road, saluting them with the same acclamations, lavishing the same bravos. They travelled in this way through the east of the Union, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire, the north and the west by New York, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, returning to the south by Illinois, Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. They went to the southeast by Alabama and Florida, going up by Georgia and the Carolinas, visiting the center by Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, and Indiana, and after quitting the Washington Station, re-entered Baltimore, where for four days one would have thought that the United States of America were seated at one immense banquet, saluting them simultaneously with the same hurrahs. The apotheosis was worthy of these three heroes whom Fable would have placed in the rank of demigods. And now will this attempt, unprecedented in the annals of travels, lead to any practical result? Will direct communication with the moon ever be established? Will they ever lay the foundation of a travelling surface through the solar world? Will they go from one planet to another, from Jupiter to Mercury, and after a while, from one star to another, from the polar to Sirius? Will this means of locomotion allow us to visit those suns which swarm in the firmament? To such questions no answer can be given. But knowing the bold ingenuity of the Anglo-Saxon race, no one would be astonished if the Americans seek to make some use of President Barbicane's attempt. Thus, 
Some time after the return of the travellers, the public received with marked favour the announcement of a company, limited, with a capital of a hundred million of dollars, divided into a hundred thousand shares of a thousand dollars each, under the name of the National Company of Interstellary Communication. President Barbicane, Vice President Captain Nickel, Secretary J.T. Maston, Director of Movements Michel Ardin. And as it is part of the American temperament to foresee everything in business, even failure, the Honorable Harry Trollope, Judge Commissioner, and Francis Drayton, Magistrate, were nominated beforehand. This is the end of Round the Moon by Jules Verne, translated by Louis Mercier, eighteen twenty to eighteen seventy five. End of chapter, end of book. Thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.